Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Well, we have an action-packed pod for you today. Stephen Hansen previews investor sentiment leading into the third quarter. We have Lauren on to talk about gene therapy's other immune toxicity problem. And Steve, our Washington editor, joins us to discuss drug pricing legislation that is moving through the Senate. Stephen, I'd like to turn to you right out of the gate. You spoke to bevy of buy-siders about whether we've hit the bottom. Have we? Is there a light at the end of this bear tunnel we've been in for 18, 19 months now? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so there were actually a few investors that surprisingly were actually willing to potentially call a bottom here. And I think that's one of the things people are hopeful about. If you look at where the indexes have been, the last sort of bottom we saw in them was in sort of early May. And since then, the indexes are up. XBI is up about 25%. So there is some hope that we might have seen sort of the bottom of this bear markets. Yet things are still incredibly cheap from a sort of historical perspective in, in investors' eyes. So I think some of them are actually sort of, you know, if they have cash, uh, they're actually pretty excited to uh, start investing in this in this market. Stephen, I know that some people have been feeling like this down market is going to sort of clear a little bit of the underbrush, or I don't know how you want to think about it in some companies that shouldn't be public. Is it too soon for their recovery to begin? Have, has that actually happened at all? Yeah, that was one of the debates that was going on between the different buy setters I spoke to is that some were sort of saying that there might be some signs that the recovery has already started to happen. One of those signs being that, you know, I think in the past month, we've started to see several stocks where you've actually seen positive share price appreciation on the back of data, which we hadn't seen basically all of the first half and even into the back back end of last year. So that was sort of a sign that, you know, some of those folks that sort of either had to sell or were just not sort of specialists that just didn't want to be in the stock kind of were finally kind of cleared out. But yes, there were others that are arguing that there's still probably quite a bit of consolidation that needs to happen here before we can see a recovery. So whether that's a lot of these small sort of M&A transactions we're seeing, merger of equals, bankruptcies, these sorts of things, that there probably will be have to be a fair bit of that to deal with before we start to move towards a real recovery though. And, you know, are there any areas that buy-siders are prioritizing in this market? Yeah. So with, on reflecting on the valuations that we're seeing now, you know, one of the buy-siders brought up to me the fact that if you look at what the average market cap is for a phase three NASDAQ company right now, it's around $400 million. If you compare that, the best proxy I was able to get at was looking at an early stage NASDAQ IPO in the 2020-21 class, they were had a post-money valuation on average that was almost $800 million. So basically, the point being, late stage and commercial assets were where a lot of these buy-sides were looking to focus because they could buy them now at valuations that you know they previously would have had to pay for a preclinical company. So that's where a lot of money is going. That's where I think maybe one of the areas where if you're a company that is in the early stages and you're a public company... That's probably going to be one of the most challenging areas in terms of finding 
lots of investors sort of interested in putting money into you. And so those are the companies that may need to really pull out all the stops and basically do everything they can to survive until we get to this recovery point to where the money kind of starts to flow down again. Right. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see whether we sort of do return to those heady days of preclinical IPOs or whether there's any learning from this that, you know, imprinting. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been through enough cycles now to realize that every four or five years, the complaints about preclinical IPOs continues to pop up. So no one ever learns is what you're saying. Well, I think there's too much money to be made by the bankers and things to uh, pump companies out to really learn. So I think this is sort of an ebb and flow that's probably going to be there. And I wouldn't be surprised to be having this conversation again in a couple of years time when we start getting more preclinical IPOs, but um, yeah, probably not. Well, you certainly had a few optimists out there. Uh, Christiana Barden from BioImpact Capital, she had some great quotes in your story, Stephen. We think this is shaping up to be the opportunity of a decade, she said. And then she went on, I think, to talk about asset prices, right, Stephen? That's right. Yeah. So BioImpact Capital is MPM Capital's uh, public equity arm. And um, they had actually just raised a new fund last year. So she's in sort of one of the maybe more enviable positions of having a lot of cash that needs to be deployed. And so she was the one who was commenting on how these phase three assets could be cheaper than what she would have paid for something last year. Yeah. And then on the practical side, one of my favorite quotes came from out of Venrock, Namish Shaw, cash is king. You just have to figure it out. There will be one of these financings that you didn't want to have to do, but you kind of have to do it. But he said that takes a lot of uncertainty off the table in the coming months. And so that kind of speaks to a lot of these deals that you're you've been reporting on for the past few months in terms of alternative financings, right, Stephen? That's right. And that was a pretty common theme as well, I guess, across, you know, across my conversations with investors was that a lot of anecdotes about, you know, we called this company and we spoke to them maybe in January, February, March of this year. And we were saying, hey, we'd like to help you finance the company going forward. And the boards would come back and say, no, we don't want to do a financing at these low valuations. We're going to wait till we get better terms. And now a lot of those companies are 30, 40, 50% lower than they were then. So I think it just harkens back to what is for as long as I've been working in the space is the mantra, right? Is you, you never raise when you need to, you raise whenever you can, and you raise as much as you can whenever you can. So I think that's just as true today as it was probably back in the 90s. Yeah, and that, that harkens back to uh, something I brought up a couple of times on the pod. We had JP Morgan's Mike Gato on the BioCentury show back in April, and he spoke to the fact that a lot of financings and M&A wasn't getting done. And he said, you know, and he's been in industry since, well, for decades now. And, and he said, basically what you just said, these companies couldn't stomach their valuations at that time, but they'll come around to it eventually. That's right. Yeah. I mean, if you've been, so we've got a data bite that we'll be publishing today where we do this analysis of, I guess, what I refer to as the investable universe, which is essentially the number of biotech companies above 200 million market cap. And just in the past, just in the first six months of 2022, it's shrunk by 20% a large chunk of that coming out of the $1 to $5 billion cohort. So you're really sort of seeing a contraction of what had been, I mean, to be honest, some investors are probably going to be happy with that because that was the other large complaint over the past year I've had was that 
investors just saying, there's just way too many companies for us to be able to follow and invest in. And so I think a lot of them will be, <laughs> be happy to see something of a contraction. Excellent. Well, Stephen's story, uh, BioCentury's 3Q22 Financial Markets Preview is on our website, right on the homepage. You'll find it in your latest email from BioCentury as well. Great stuff, Stephen. And here's hoping things start to turn around. It's certainly been a slog. And I know people are starting to really feel a little exhausted by the grind. Fingers crossed. All right. I'd like to turn over to the world of AAV gene therapy and bring in Lauren. DMD trials have resurfaced an immune-related toxicity that developers need to put back on the radar, you wrote last week, Lauren. But you said that there's a positive sign that competing companies in the space have kind of banded together to solve the problem in the hope that they can preempt future occurrences. Why don't we sort of back up a little bit, Lauren, and tell us what this toxicity problem is and what these companies are trying to work together to do about it. Sure. This toxicity emerged last year, last September, in a Pfizer phase three study of an AAV vector for in DMD. And in that study, three patients presented with severe muscle weakness. And so toxicity is nothing new to AAV vectors, but so much of the focus has been on the immune response to the capsid. You know, that is the problem that is behind the redosing issue, the fact that you can't redose patients, the fact that you can't treat some patients because they'll have pre-existing antibodies. There has not been a lot of attention recently to immune responses against the transgene, which is, is what it seems like is happening here. So this is a T cell response to the protein, in this case, the microdystrophin that you're actually delivering. And so for these patients, it, it's happening when certain patients have a large deletion in the gene. So they're just not making that protein. Their immune system has never seen these sequences. And it's something that used to happen. It used to happen with the adenoviral vectors. But with AAVs, the, these vectors don't cause an immune response that, that's nearly to the same degree as what people were seeing with adenoviral vectors. And in order to generate this type of response, you need to have that second inflammatory signal. This is something that companies haven't paid a lot of attention to. And it seems like, at least in certain indications, it's something that maybe we need to start thinking about really interesting the fact that these different companies kind of said, hey, listen, we've got this common problem. What are we going to do about it together? Because you don't see that happening a lot. And do you feel like it actually got more efficient because of that? And, you know, what, what are the solutions they're kind of looking towards? So what I heard when I spoke with some of the people involved in these studies, it wasn't just the Pfizer study. A patient in a Genathon study had the same kind of toxicity and also someone in a Sarepta study. What I heard when I spoke with them was that this was something that they would not have been able to figure out if they didn't come together with the other companies working in the space. What they had to do is look at the patients who were affected, look at their mutations and backtrack and try to figure out what specific region of the gene was causing a problem. And that's something that you can't do if you're having one or two patients in the study who, who are presenting with this toxicity. I guess going forward, Hopefully this sets precedent and this is a way to sort out these toxicities before they become a bigger problem than they have to be. 
Yeah, it's a super cool story. The science is very interesting around it. And I do encourage people to to check it out themselves. Lauren, so just maybe you can outline why this happens so much in DMD and what are the other areas that might be vulnerable to this? Yeah, so you need certain ingredients to have this kind of an immune response to a transgene. You need to have the activated T cells, the the TCR, but you also need to have that second inflammatory signal that I mentioned. And because the AAVs are not causing that, this is something that can happen when the vectors are targeting a tissue that's already inflamed. And so that's what's happened in the DMD patients. They have a lot of muscle inflammation. So I've heard that this is this case, you know, DMD is the perfect example for of a type of indication where this can happen. But I also heard that it's not the only indication. So, you know, anytime you're you're targeting the muscle in a patient who's got inflammation, this is a risk. I also heard that there may be a risk when you're targeting the heart in patients who have inflammation, the cardiovascular inflammation, possibly in the brain when there's neurodegeneration that has a lot of inflammation too. So this is something that we've seen in DMD. It's something that's been seen in animal models and other indications. And that's another point. I think right now the problem is that there's no way to predict which patients are going to have this type of toxicity before you actually see it happen. So hopefully going forward, we'll have a way to predict which epitopes could be a problem, which we can say which indications are a problem, but we can't say upfront, you shouldn't be treated with this gene therapy because you may have this type of toxicity. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. Lauren's story is up on our website as well. And she's been following this beat for years now, and she'll continue with her coverage of the space in future stories. Let's turn to Washington and bring in Steve Usden, our Washington editor. Steve, last week you reported that the U.S. has moved closer to drug price regulation. What has happened and what's left to happen to get some drug pricing legislation to President Biden's desk? So the the Democrats, all 50 Senate Democrats, seem to have agreed on a drug pricing provisions of a budget reconciliation bill. That's a big step forward. It doesn't absolutely doesn't mean that it's it's going to pass. The drug pricing provisions were the low-hanging fruit as far as getting Democratic consensus were concerned. Their uh, climate change and tax policies that they also want to put in to the bill, and they haven't haven't unveiled them yet. And as far as I know, they haven't achieved the same kind of consensus about them. The big things about the drug pricing provisions, basically two kind of big moving parts. There's price regulation for drugs purchased by Medicare after they've been on the market for a certain period of time. And there's a redesign of the Part D benefit to create a cap on out-of-pocket costs. The price regulation part kicks in at nine years for small molecule drugs and 13 years for biologics. In addition, if there's a high likelihood of a biosimilar coming to market within two years, biologics are exempt from price regulation. So really, there isn't very much concern about the biologics part of it. People in the industry don't necessarily like the idea of having price regulation, but in practical terms, it's not going to have much effect on biologics. There is a concern in the biopharm industry about the nine years for small molecules and also about the idea that there's a differential between the two because it obviously creates incentives for investing in biologics over small molecules. There are a lot of reasons why small molecules are important, especially for the Medicare population. On the Part D redesign, the bill caps out-of-pocket expenses 
which currently don't have a ceiling, at $2,000 a year, and it gives patients the option to spread those costs over a full calendar year. That's going to help a lot of people. I believe it's a step in the right direction, but it's still going to be a barrier. There are an awful lot of people who are going to leave drugs that they need behind at the pharmacy counter because of those out-of-pocket costs, and the cap really should be lower if there should be any out-of-pocket costs at all. I'm not convinced of that. All right, Stephen, I know you spoke to a range of people on this. You got a statement from Bio. You talked to RA Capital's Peter Kolchinski, who's very vocal on this topic. You talked to Dan Mendelson at, at Morgan Health. What are some of the key opinion leaders saying about this legislation? Well, that's a nice setup for the commentary that I wrote about Bio's response to it. Bio responded to it. They really went ballistic. They issued a statement saying that that this legislation, if it's enacted, would dismantle innovation, that it would be the biggest setback for minority patients in 100 years, and they accused the Biden administration of launching an assault on the biotech industry and said that that assault is responsible for drying up the pipeline for cures. So I wrote a commentary pointing out that none of those accusations is true and suggesting that the kind of hyperbole that was in that statement really hurts the industry and that everyone would be better off or be better served by focusing on positive proposals for how to modify the legislation in ways that would make it better for patients and better for the biopharma industry. Some of the people that I spoke with, Peter Kolchinski, Dan Mendelson, others, suggested some of the things that they think would be positive changes. Obviously, increasing the period of time on the nine years for small molecules to make it closer to the biologics period. Also reducing the out-of-pocket spending below the $2,000 cap. And ultimately, I think, and this reflects more maybe my own ideas than the ideas of people who I spoke with, adopting a policy that would link prices to value more than just setting an arbitrary deadline. Because the, the problem with you, if you only regulate prices of drugs after they've been on the market for a certain period of time, it doesn't do anything to assure you that the launch prices of drugs are acceptable or appropriate. And if you don't have any connection between the value of the drugs and the pricing, or at least if the public isn't assured that there's some kind of connection there, you're going to risk people having either the reality or the perception companies are gaming the system by compensating for a date certain when prices go down by increasing the launch price and the prices that everyone pays all along the way until you get to that point. All right. And what's next, Steve? Well, there's two things that are next. One is, or or maybe more than two things. Okay. One of the things, the thing that precipitated this in the first place was a, a Senate Democratic leadership submitting their drug pricing proposals to the Senate parliamentarian. The parliamentarian has to rule and determine whether the legislation meets the criteria for budget reconciliation. That's a very uh, complicated set of uh, of parameters. It's possible that that the parliamentarian will rule that everything that the Democrats have submitted is acceptable in a budget reconciliation bill. It's possible that the parliamentarian will require some of the things to be either changed or removed from the bill. And then the Democrats will have to um, go back to the drawing board and change it a little bit. I think a lot of the feedback that they're getting 
have from people who have seen the bill from stakeholders on all sides is likely to lead to some kind of changes in the legislation in any case. And then there's the bigger picture question of whether the Democrats will be able to get consensus in the Senate on other provisions in the budget reconciliation legislation, the tax and climate change provisions. And then there's the further hurdle of determining whether they can get all the votes that they need in the House of Representatives to pass something if they get it all, if they get their act together on on everything in the Senate. So there's a, a lot of different things that have to happen in order for this legislation to get enacted. It's certainly not impossible, but it's also certainly not a done deal. All right, Steve, thanks for that. And I know you'll have your finger to the pulse here as this winds its way through. I guess one last quick question. Any likely impact on PDUFA? Where do things stand with PDUFA negotiations? So PDUFA has passed the House of Representatives. It's still pending in the Senate. And what I've heard, the chatter I've heard, is that Republicans, especially Republican leadership, Senator McConnell, are, are really upset with Democrats for their attempt to pass this kind of legislation using budget reconciliation. And if this legislation goes through under budget reconciliation, Republicans are threatening to basically slow walk everything else in the whole legislative agenda. And that could include a do for reauthorization. Potentially, if this bill goes through under budget reconciliation and, and is signed by the president, I wouldn't be surprised if the Republican leadership decides to delay PDUFA reauthorization past the end of September deadline for reauthorizing it, which will cause a great deal of disruption and consternation at FDA and regulated industry and the patients who depend on drugs that are regulated by FDA. All right. Thanks for the update, Steve. Register now to join us at the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Summit. It will be held in the San Francisco Bay Area, November 14th to 16th of this year. BioCentury and Bay Helix and our many other partners have brought together a global community of C-suite executives and investors focused on the impact of Chinese investment on biopharma innovation. This year's conference focuses on how the future of biopharma innovation now rests on the creation of trusted cross-border relationships to succeed at product development and create ROI for investors, not only in Asia, but across the entire biopharma ecosystem. We'll have many, many presenting companies. We'll have panels. We'll have an exclusive report produced by McKinsey for attendees. And there'll be lots of opportunities for one-to-one -one peer networking. So register now. You can go to our website, biocentury.com, and take it from there. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll catch you next week.